If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Major Tom McKay is on the board, while Willard's getting booking the guests in the legendary CHML newsroom, Jennifer McQueen. Here's Scott Thompson! Yeah! It is Hamilton today. I'm Scott Thompson, 900 CHML. All right, before we get underway, I got to make a correction and I got to apologize because I said something incredibly incorrect yesterday. And as uh, we're getting ready for the show, uh, I'm kind of watching question period out of the side of my eye, or side of my uh, head with another screen as, um, as the show starts, usually around 2.30-ish to 3, somewhere question period starts then. And uh, so anyway, uh, a lot of others answering questions. I knew I had been told that, uh, well, I read that he had several meetings that day and that, you know, it it wasn't as if he was going to appear. I misinterpreted that. That was my mistake. And I was making a big shtick about him not being there for the first day of class. I I was totally wrong. He was there. And I wish that I hadn't got this wrong because there's an incredible clip and we're trying to find it. Of it, because you can imagine how feisty it was first day back of uh, of session in the House of Commons after the uh, the Christmas break. So anyway, um, uh, the Prime Minister is going on about uh, how Pierre Polyev is muzzling his MPs, and immediately the House just erupted in a roar because, as you might remember, last week. It was a liberal MP from Newfoundland who stood up and said, you know, uh, during the caucus and the, in the, uh, and the retreats that were going on, you know, we really should have a leadership review because some are concerned about the leadership of the liberal party. And, uh, it got a lot of attention. We talked about it on the show. And then the next day, nope, nothing to see here. <laughs> uh, he completely, uh, pulled back on his, on his comments. So it was kind of amusing to see the prime minister stand up and, and accuse uh, Pierre Polyev of, of muzzling his MPs when, in fact, there was just such an obvious display of that when this member of parliament for the liberals stood out and said, you know, I think we should have a, a, a leadership review. So it was uh, it continued on right where it left off and uh, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Uh, the ethics commissioner says he gave the OK to Justin Trudeau's free trip. Uh, and just because they're rich doesn't mean they can't accept gifts. There you go. Um, the optics, of course, another issue. And maybe that explains uh, why the prime minister is constantly using the term middle class, um, because it's not necessarily the lifestyle that he leads. Uh, Ontario will uh, complete renovations. They're going to keep moving forward with renovations on the uh, Pickering nuclear power station uh, at one time. And of course, we know that it had been uh, refurbished to a point to extend its life. And then there was chatter going around as if uh, as to whether, you know, let's rebuild this thing, keep it going by 2035, I believe they're looking at to finish this project. And obviously with the energy challenges that we're going to face and this being renewable energy that um, that it looks now like this is going to go ahead. We'll talk about that coming up a little later on in the show. Also, the federal government pauses discussions uh, regarding made medical assistance in dying uh, in and around mental health issues. And I think everybody's kind of breathing a sigh of relief about that. That is clearly a gray area and a slippery slope. And boy, I'm not sure you want to move forward 
with that until uh, we give that lots of examination. The inquiry into the foreign interference in the last two federal elections continues. Uh, still kind of, I don't know, uh, figuring out conditions of it all. And Elon Musk, who everybody can't help but hate, even though the man brought back commercial production of the electric vehicle and is sending people into space on a daily basis, including, well, not daily, including up to the space uh, station and, um, and, and the projects onto the moon, which will eventually lead to Mars. And it's amazing how many people uh, just, you know, uh, jump up and down at Elon Musk's um, whenever he says anything on his social media platform and how he's going to, uh, you know, uh, uh, I don't know what he's going to do. But anyway, uh, this man is obviously a genius and obviously enjoys toying with those people that I'm speaking of that seem to be just so bent on whatever it is that he's doing and really don't have a positive thing to say about him. Is Elon Musk uh, eccentric? Yes. Is he a genius? Yes. Is he a bit of a freak because of all of that? Yes. I mean, he's different. Isn't that obvious? When was the last time you were designing rockets or electric vehicles? Anyway, I digress. Now, uh, this is this is pretty amazing. Uh, The first to implant a device in a human brain that will transmit signals to the brain. This obviously helping people with disabilities and such. This is viewed as quite the milestone. But, of course, it doesn't stop them. Others, well, then he's going to put a little chip in it, and it's going to go through uh, X or Twitter, whatever the hell it's called, and the next thing you know, I'm going to be, like, doing something I don't want to do. It is unbelievably hilarious, and I'm sure Elon Musk sits at home and just, you know, bangs away stuff on Twitter just to see what those people's reactions are. But now, truly incredible, the first implant in a human brain that can help uh, with a device transmit signals to the brain. Uh, electric vehicles, rockets, and now this? I don't know. Uh, you can say what you want. All right, the other thing, after you know, do, uh, after uh, Justin Trudeau is going to protect us with handgun bans and all this other stuff, except, of course, uh, you know, upping inspections at the border, which is where most of the handguns come from, the United States. Um, gun crimes are up 9% from 2021. Gun crimes are up uh, 9% from 2021, despite what um, the the uh, prime minister's uh, thoughts are on guns or criminals or crime. Uh, and here's the sad part. The largest increase, the most increase, those between 12 and 17 years of age. No, Canada's not broken, but the government certainly is. Uh, We talked about this story when it first broke, uh, I guess, before Christmas now. And um, you might remember the CBC announced that it was uh, it's in trouble, like a lot of the uh, other traditional media is. And and it was going to be laying off more employees. Uh, And then when the CBC president, Catherine Tate, was interviewed uh, on CBC on uh, on the national news, she was uh, asked by a a very strong reporter that, uh, you know, whether there were still going to be big bonuses for executroids, considering there is supposed to be layoffs. And and the president of CBC did not commit to not giving bonuses and said that's something we have to look at. Uh, And it it has generated a lot of interest as a result of that as people are being laid off. Uh, Let's bring in Franco Franco Terrazano, Canadian Taxpayers Federation Federal Director, and here now. Franco, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on today. 
So, Franco, where is this now? Where at what point is this discussion? Well, Tate's going to be in the hot seat today in like almost 30 minutes. A little bit after that, she's going to be appearing in front of a parliamentary a parliamentary committee. Sorry to explain what she's going to do about these bonuses. Right. As you kind of set the stage for us just weeks before Christmas, announcing hundreds of layoffs. And then she can't even go on national television and say whether or not the big fat cats, you know, the executive class at the CBC is going to be giving up their bonuses. And, you know, no matter where you stand on the CBC debate, whether we should have a CBC, whether they should get less money from taxpayers, whether they should be defunded completely, no matter where you stand, I think everyone can agree that it sends a pretty bad message when uh, a CBC executives are still taking bonuses while laying off hundreds of staffers and then, you know, essentially begging the government for more and more taxpayer cash every single year. So she's going to be in the hot seat in a parliamentary committee. And that's why today the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, uh, you know, put out a news release calling on Tate, the head of the CBC, today to at the committee appearance to turn down the bonuses for executives this year. Are you expecting her at this committee to change course? <laughs> well, I sure hope she would. I sure hope she would. But, you know, uh, I do not have a very good track record on uh, guessing when <laughs> government bureaucrats or politicians, for that matter, will give up extra pay for themselves. But, you know, like, let's also just put this into context for everyone, right? So the CTF was the first to find and discover that the CBC handed out $16 million in bonuses in 2022. $99 million in bonuses since 2015. Of course, all of that is taxpayer-funded bonuses. And and Tate herself is, is very highly compensated, okay? So the government won't say what her actual compensation is, but they will say that she's paid anywhere between $470,000 all the way to $620,000. That's her compensation range. It includes salaries, it includes bonus, it includes benefits. And while Tate hasn't said what her bonus is, her predecessor uh, once told a Senate committee that the bonus for the president of a CBC is around 20%. Okay, that's a direct quote. So Tate is very highly compensated. You got a lot of the other executives very highly compensated. The least thing that they could do is just not be handing out the big bonuses while laying off hundreds of people and taking more than a more than a billion dollars from taxpayers every year. Uh, we understand that she is close to the end of her term now, and that likely won't be renewed. How did she get here? <laughs> well, how she got into the hot seat today uh, is it, pretty. No, how simple, did how right? did she get how did she get hired, Franco? Who hired her? You know that I don't know. That I don't know. I I, I don't know the backstory on that. Um, but she got in the hot seat because completely unwilling to answer a pretty simple question. From, you know, kudos to the CBC reporter on live TV for asking yeah. their own boss, yeah. you know, will you turn down the bonus? I, like, honestly, such big kudos for that CBC broadcaster to put that hard question to her boss. And, and you know what's kind of funny? This is a little bit off the beaten track of the taxpayer stuff, but um, this, this is a news organization. You'd think they'd be better at handling comms for their president than what they've done so far. Uh, what about her performance during her term? Does it warrant any of these bonuses? Well, you know, I think that's pretty subjective, but uh, different people are going to have different views. Um, obviously, I don't think they should be handing out bonuses. Uh, that's for sure. And here's another interesting tidbit, okay, about the bonuses, about the money that they've been getting. So over the last couple of years here during the pandemic, 
The feds have given the CBC an extra $42 million to help the CBC recover through the pandemic. Okay, so the feds have given them an extra $42 million. Well, since the beginning of the pandemic, the CBC has handed out $46 million in bonuses. Okay, so one more time, folks, the feds give the CBC an extra $42 million to help it through the pandemic. Then the CBC hands out $46 million in bonuses during the pandemic years. So taking from struggling taxpayers to the CBC, then the CBC takes that taxpayer money and hands it out to their uh, through bonuses to their to, to, to their staff and executives. Uh, we've talked about this before, Franco, but clearly there needs to be some sort of transparency on what is considered performance in a bonus. How you, you know, I mean, having a bonus is one thing, but as we've talked about, you've got to earn that. You've got to do something that, that makes the company realize, wow, this person's gone beyond the call of duty. But I don't know if we've seen that. No, 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 we haven't. And this is an issue not just with the CBC, but across departments and crown corporations, right? Look, in the private sector, there are bonuses. Right. Everyone knows that. But in the private sector, there's also pay cuts and job losses, people actually being held accountable. And the government just uses one part of this equation, the bonus part. Well, I mean, (laughs) whoever loses their job in government. Right. I mean, pay cuts are almost as rare. So they're only taking the bonus side of the equation within the federal bureaucracy itself. They've handed out more than a billion dollars in bonuses since 2015, uh, even when departments can barely meet half of their own performance targets. The Bank of Canada folks, right? $55 million in bonuses over the last, what, three years when inflation was a 40-year high, when they missed their inflation target by a country mile and as they raised interest rates many, many times. Or what about the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation, right? They're supposed to be around so that people can afford homes. Well, uh, since 2020, they've handed out $75 million in bonuses when Canadians can't afford to buy a home. So it's it's almost like every bureaucrat gets a bonus if they're able to show up uh, two days a week with the shoes tied here. Franco Terrazano with us, Canadian Taxpayers Federation Federal Director, CBC President Catherine Tate to appear before committee uh, probably at about four o'clock this afternoon and trying to justify or answer to bonuses while there are layoffs. Franco, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Hey, thanks for having me on today. We certainly know there is a housing crisis uh, in this country and affordability have become just massive issues of late. And we've also heard that um, it's going to take an awful long time for us to build our way out of this. And it's going to take more than just the typical uh, template of doing things in order to get it done. As a result, we've seen all kinds of uh, new ideas and suggestions uh, come into play, whether it's regarding zoning and planning or even the actual building of homes themselves. This is fascinating, and we've we've seen different situations like this where uh, with uh, shopping mall developments and such, but Leon's Furniture plans to build a new neighborhood uh, adjacent to its Toronto headquarters uh, and, and build houses on it. They, they've got this vacant piece of land, and they're going to turn it into homes. Uh, a fascinating idea, and not something you would necessarily expect from a company that furnishes the inside of the home as opposed to building them. Let's bring in Mike Walsh, President, CEO of Leon's Furniture Limited, and here now. Mike, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Very well. It's very nice to talk to you. Mike, this is a, a pretty creative idea, and we've heard that that's what it's going to take to help us get out of this and, and to, to solve the challenge. How did this come about? This is quite out-of-the-box thinking, no pun intended. 
Well, I think we've been, you know, I've been with, uh, with Leon's Furniture Limited for eight years, and we've been talking about um, land. So we own 429 acres of land across Canada. Um, and we started this process with the city of Toronto. We're, so we're sitting on 40 acres of, uh, of land here that we can develop. And just to put into perspective, just the building in the distribution center today occupies six acres. So it gives you the sense of some of the available acreage. And so we started with the city of Toronto a number of years ago, and then the pandemic hit, so it really slowed things down. And then in July of 2022, um, city Toronto City Council adopted the staff's recommendation to convert the lands. And then uh, that went to the provincial government and then the Ministry of Municipal Housing and Affairs um, approved the recommended conversion to go from employment uh, area to regeneration area. And that's really important because the regeneration area lets you do houses. And so then you take a master concept about how do we optimize and intensify the land um, and, and hoping to get 4.6 million square feet of G GFA or gross floor area. And how you do that is by going vertical and horizontal and everywhere, which got us into the housing piece. So, um, yeah, so basically this was land that you bought way back when, or the company bought way back when in, in, you know, never knowing how you're going to expand, what you're going to need, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but why housing? Why not? If you don't need the land, just sell it to somebody else, sell it to a developer. This is quite a big jump. Yeah. We, we, it's interesting because people don't think of Leon's as development, but we've developed most of our own stores that are sitting on own lands. We have, uh, um, a DC and Delta we developed. We're currently building a half a million square foot uh, DC in Edmonton. And it's not Mike driving around in a dump truck. We partner with top tiered um, developers that they end up doing a lot of the construction and stuff like that. And yeah. I guess the last piece is around why not just sell the land? That would probably be easy. But the one key thing about land is it generally appreciates. Um, and so mm -hmm. we think there's value in that. And if you partner with the right partners, I think anything's possible and it solves an issue that, you know, collectively there's many parts of the country that are having problems with housing. Yeah, it's certainly, there certainly is the need. That's for sure. Um, was this a hard sell or considering the predicament we're in quite easy? You talked about, uh, you know, uh, talking about this as early as eight years ago. What are the challenges moving forward? I think the challenges are in order to move forward. So phase one is building a new head office and a new flagship store. And then phase two, which happens at the same time, is coming up with a master plan of exactly how things are going to go together from plumbing and everything else and how many houses and what types of houses. Um, and then you work closely with the city of Toronto to get to a world where um, the secondary plan process happens. And we're hoping to have that sometime in mid-2025. And how involved will the company, will Leon's be in things like planning and what this neighborhood's going to look like, the configuration of homes? Super, super, um, super engaged. I think the way we look at it is as we start going through the master plan process, uh, developing that, we'll be working with architects, but that's when we start having the conversations with top tier developers and bringing them in um, because you don't want them to be brought into the last minute. So it'll be a lot of them doing it, but it'll be a lot of us working with the city of Toronto. Uh, and as as a company that sells furniture, obviously, do you see in the future less need for shopping space, smaller footprints, smaller headquarters, all of that? I would say that there 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 is the opportunity. It's a little bit different in the furniture business and the mattress business because customers still want to touch and feel and lie down on the mattress. 
Yeah. But definitely I'm sitting in a 65,000 square foot store right now. Does the new store have to be 65,000 square foot? No. Mm. It could be probably anywhere between 40 and 50,000 square feet. So tell us what these neighborhoods may look like. It sounds like a quite a, a, a different variety of homes. It's just not all, you know, towers or high density. Absolutely not. So think of it in terms of single family, multifamily units, mix of ownership from rentals, townhouses, mid and high rise, affordable housing, a little bit of everything. What about amenities or other businesses in and around this this little precinct? Uh, so there'll be an opportunity to do that as well. Um, but, uh, you know, until we get through the master plan, which will kind of define what that all looks like, you know, you could do more office buildings, but I'm not sure we want to build more office buildings, especially given, you know, where we are with office buildings and bringing people back to work. So mm-hmm. we, we can contemplate a number of things. Um, and, and, you know, again, maximizing and optimizing the land is kind of the key to doing this. How do you leverage and intensify and use up every bit of land that you can. What's next for you? What? How, how does this move forward? Because this is obviously new ground. Um, you mean as it relates to this particular property? Correct. Yeah, so we're going to move forward with the master plan uh, process and work with our top tier developers. Um, and, then, and then the other piece that we announced, I think it was about a year ago, um, was that we're going to develop a REIT. Um, given the size of the property that we own. And so that'll be a separately public uh, company, which will have a different um, CEO and management team, as well as a different board of trustees. And what about a timeline for this, Mike? For the building of houses and that? Yeah, for the project adjacent to the headquarters. Yeah, so I'll have a better idea of how this all comes together, but think of it in a, as a multi-year, multi-phased approach. Like, we're not going to end up building 4,000 houses in the next couple of years. Right. Um, but we do want to do it fairly quickly because we believe that there's a need. So we'll have a better idea in probably the next 6 to 12 months as we get down that process of, of how much work effort there is to get to the master planning stage. And the City of Toronto uh, has been absolutely fantastic to deal with through this entire process. No, I guess a big question here is, Mike, if you buy a house in the Leon's uh, neighborhood, do you get a discount at Leon's when it comes to furnishing it? You know what? If we have 4,000 houses and there's a Leon's store uh, in the middle of that, I'm sure we could figure something out from a home ownership perspective. <laughs> Absolutely. That was a good plug. Thank you. All right, Mike Walsh with us, president and CEO of Leon's Furniture Limited. Fascinating project, and and many are looking at this, taking uh, space and converting it back into or converting it to uh, residentially zoned property to help the housing situation. Mike, thanks for the time. Good luck. Have a great day. We have uh, talked a lot at length over the years about the Trans Mountain Pipeline. Um, It's amazing how long it takes for uh, Canada to get projects done, whether it's... uh, building houses, whether it's building pipelines, whether it's building roads, whether it's building anything. It just seems to take a long time. And now the mad rush is on. Uh, except for the Trans Mountain Pipeline, it's once again facing some delay. Uh, the Crown Corporation building the massive project, which had been previously uh, well expected to be uh, finished within the next few weeks or months. Dan McTagg with us, President of Canadians for Affordable Energy, former Liberal MP and here now. Dan, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am. Thanks for having me. Uh, I also want to ask you about um, uh, the Pickering nuclear plant. We'll talk about that in a sec. Why the delay here? Um, what, what can you add to this? 
Well, it sounds like there's more uh, more pressure uh, by the uh, regulator on uh, that famous last bend, uh, about a two-kilometer section, which they have been battling back and forth as to how it can be done in a way that doesn't require uh, additional time. Uh, the regulator seems to believe that uh, there has to be a, a much thicker gauge of steel used uh, for that uh, part of the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion. And uh, they seem to be digging their heels into the idea that uh, it has to be done. If that were the case, and the company was have to would have to redo part of that section or find uh, a different, more malleable soil and conditions to work in, then that could delay this project by yet another year. Um, at this point, uh, it's it's clear that they have jumped through hoops to make this happen, but uh, the uh, the regulator appears to want to uh, make sure that uh, every blade of grass is looked at before uh, giving its final approval. Uh, unfortunately, uh, I think this is probably an example of what happens when uh, you have uh, tight regulations that uh, uh, really don't reflect realities in terms of what has been provided there. Uh, how overdue is this? Well, I mean, the projects first uh, came to light in 2009. So that's about 14 years ago, 15 years ago. And we're only now starting to get uh, to the point where we can see light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, it shouldn't take 16 years to build an expanded pipeline. The Americans can do it. Uh, you know, there are different circumstances here, but the Americans can do it in three or four years. When you consider the amount of... Uh, uh, the time it takes to get the approval, then you're fighting governments. Once the approval is done, then uh, the owner had to leave. Uh, you know, I would say three quarters of this time has been spent dilly dallying uh, in a country in which a handful of people have been extraordinarily uh, effective in hog tying uh, our uh, resources, in particular oil. And for that reason, any delay is uh, is seen as a good for them because it discourages investment and. Uh, we can all live in an environment where we uh, we get all of our electricity from uh, you know from uh, uh, from windmills, uh, solar panels, and uh, unicorn flatulence. Um, how could we have avoided this mess? Well, we could avoid it by the federal government standing up and defending its uh, its the integrity of its uh, approval process. Once it gives its the crown seal and says, "Yeah, this this is worthy of being built." You don't then start to allow fanatics to come in and use lawfare and all sorts of weird, uh, you know, obstruction, and then you know see a handful of individuals doing whatever they can, including the province of British Columbia, to block these things. Unless, of course, you can absolutely guarantee that those who are doing the blocking uh, are subject to liability, such that the effect of their blocking should be something they pay for ultimately, and they're sued for. But this is a federal government that doesn't want to go after the climate. Uh, uh, you know, the climate crowd that has been really responsible for this and those who have uh, made a lot of money uh, using foreign uh, foundations in order to block and frustrate Canadian resources from getting to market. I know they haven't been very successful in the United States, certainly none under previous uh, administrations uh, prior to the Biden administration. Uh, but we'll see how this all turns out because it's allowed the Americans in the past five to 10 years to build out pipelines, to build LNG while Canada, while Canada really is forced to sit on its hands because of uh, a lack of spine by our political leaders to stand up and defend uh, the uh, permitting process, uh, which is supposed to be sound. Because it is not, it's subject to 
you know, uh, to whim and to political pressure. Uh, Canada's losing tens of billions of dollars in investments. The kind of stuff that could be invested in our hospitals, in our education system, protect our social programs, increase our standard living, fight inflation. But of course, people don't really think about that when they go to the uh, at the end of the week and say, I don't have any money. I can't hmm. make my bills. Well, there's a reason. Because you have a government in Ottawa that you voted for, Liberal, Green, NDP, Bloc, that has actually said no to these things, the very things you need to get by and to maintain your standard of living. So there's a real connection, not just for someone like me who's been in politics for many years, the real connection between uh, you know, ransacking your, uh, your golden goose, destroying its ability to make ends meet, and your financial lot. You don't like how things are going in this country? And you have to ask yourself why you would support parties like the Liberal NDP Greens, who've done nothing but block our most important asset from getting to markets. And that's unfortunate, but it's a fact that uh, many people don't like to talk about, certainly not those who uh, who have a lot to gain by uh, by trying to obstruct and hogtie our uh, resources. We're already late, Dan. Good news with the refurb of the Pickering Nuclear uh, Station. It is, and long overdue. And you know what? It's uh, old, not old, not all wisdom is new wisdom. I've been around since 1965 when they proposed the first in the township of Pickering. My old riding would be great for the future. We should be building more of these. And if anybody thinks that windmills and solar panels can cut it, good luck. You'd probably need to build one massive tower of those things every single day for the next 50 years to do what one nuclear reactor would do. Dan McTagg, president of Canadians for a formal, uh, Affordable Energy, former Liberal MP. Dan, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Good to be here. Thanks, Scott. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. From the man who uh, brought back commercial electric vehicle production, who uh, is sending people up into space, whether it's the new ventures with the moon, uh, International Space Station, what have you. Uh, now, one of Elon Musk's uh, companies, a, neuro, uh, a Neuralink implant, has been installed in a human for the first time. This is quite remarkable. Uh, the, few, uh, the first human patient has received the implant uh, from his startup Neuralink on Sunday. Recovering well, says Elon Musk. Initial result, results, results show promising neuron spike detection. Uh, spikes are activity by neurons, which the National Institute of Health describes as cells use using electrical and chemical signals to send information around the brain and to the body. Uh, obviously, uh, they received approval in September for a recruitment of a human trial. The study uses a, ro- a robot to surgically place uh, the device implant in a region of the brain that controls the intention to move. So this is, uh, and it's something that they can only really do with robotics. The human hand can't do this. So it's truly remarkable on several fronts. Let's bring in David Chipley, cybersecurity expert, CEO of Bar- uh, Boceron Security, and here now. David, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am. Thanks for the opportunity. Uh, you know, sometimes we take so much time uh, lobbing pot shots at Elon Musk. Sometimes we don't really understand or realize some of the advancements that he's made. What are your thoughts on this? Well, what's interesting is, you know, the human brain is an area that that science is still in its extreme infancy. And the idea of creating uh, 
prostheses, implantable computer chips that could benefit folks who are quadriplegic, who are um, living with uh, ALS uh, or other diseases to allow them to have a better quality of life um, in the form of being able to control computers with their brains is intriguing. Um, but it is not without significant risk. What are the risks? What are the challenges, concerns? Well, of course, this is brand new science. And so no one knows what the long-term impacts of having one of these implants will be. Putting yeah. the implants in can be extremely dangerous. So this is why they're refining the uh, robot techniques to actually implant these. Oh. In some of the animal testing, uh, which has proven to be quite controversial, a number of the monkey test subjects died and some of them died quite horribly as a result of either surgeries gone wrong or infections. So. Um, you know, the, there is risk. And so in these extreme situations, they're being allowed under a very, very provisional um, license from the FDA called an investigational license to try this stuff out. Um, but it is nowhere near ready for prime time. Uh, quite, you know, even the, the surgery part of it, where they're just using the robotics because it's so sensitive, a human hand couldn't do it. Even that part of it just seems unbelievable. Uh, whenever we have anything involving Elon Musk, there's always lots of conspiracy theories uh, that Elon Musk is going to start programming people through these devices he puts in their heads. Uh, do you want to comment on that, David? Well, it would be like asking someone who has no idea how to... Uh, how to read music to uh, reproduce Beethoven. Like, <laughs> you're so far away from any of that whatsoever. Is it probably the dream of some, you know, techno-utopianists uh, to, to be able to input content and learning, you know, matrix style into people's brains? Sure. Um, but we're about as far away from that as Galileo was from going to the moon. Uh, are, <laughs> great analogy. Uh, are you even someone who's involved in all of this? Are you ever just taken back about from, are you ever just taken back by what we can do now? I, I, I think that is the one thing that gives me great hope. We live in an age where people are bombarded a lot of times with the worst of news about what's happening, whether it's conflict in the Middle East, climate change, cats and dogs, you yeah. name it. Sorry, I had to slip a Ghostbusters uh, reference in there. But the reality is we are still living in a one of the most advanced and magical times in human history. Overall, human poverty is down and technological advancement is amazing. And I think there is significant hope for us to understand the brain to help with um, physiological uh, illnesses that actually impact mental health, um, to help people who've been in car accidents regain mobility. Um, so I, I, I think this is an area that deserves science. I think it deserves all the scrutiny possible, as Elon has proven to be less than accurate in the past. So let's hope he's not heavily involved in this company because his companies where he's actually not that involved with tend to do the best and that regulators are on the ball in this because it has so much promise and potential, but it could also create such heartbreaking false hope or tragic consequences when things don't go right. All right, David Chipley with us, cybersecurity expert, CEO of Boseron, uh, Boseron Security. Elon Musk, Neuralink implants have been installed in a human for the first time uh, and is at the early stages of something that uh, could be a milestone. David, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. You're always welcome. Take care. A quick break here. We're coming right back. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. I want to talk to Marvin Ryder about a few things. We'll see what we get through. 
uh, whether it's Flair Airlines, Pickering Nuclear, or Elon Musk. Marvin Ryder, professor at a group school of business, McMaster University, here now. Marvin, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am glad to be with you. Flair Airlines owes the federal government $67 million. We know they've uh, had uh, deals with uh, Hamilton and such. Uh, the Canadian or Canada Revenue Agency now uh, obtaining an order to seize uh, seizure and sale of uh, property. Where is Flair Airlines right now? Yeah, Scott, if you don't mind, can I say this is an odd story to me? Because in a way, this isn't news. Uh, it, the Canada Revenue Agency actually got the order back in November. This uh, money that's owed is basically the HST on 21 new planes, Boeing Max Airlines, that they were acquiring. Um, let's just say that Flair was not quick to the table to pay. So in November, the Canadian Revenue Agency got this uh, agreement that it could seize property. That then caused Flair to step forward and say, wait, not so fast. Let's talk about a payment plan. And as far as I know, they're on this payment plan and they're keeping everything current. Flair is an airline that was run on a shoestring. Uh, it is doing well. It is doing well. Its load factor is much like all the major airlines. It's got a 69% on-time uh, record. That doesn't sound great, but for Canadian airlines, that's pretty typical given winter weather, what have you. But they have never had a whole lot of money. They've never had a, a sugar daddy, if you will, with a deep pocket. So they're always running into some financing problems. But for the moment, their head is above water. Uh, connection with a larger airline, where are they getting their funding? Uh, well, I think it's basically all uh, bank and credit agency funding. Now, for these planes, they're working with a leasing agency in the United States. And if you think your interest payments are bad, they're yeah. paying 18% financing charges on this. 18%, you know, getting a, a loan on the house and paying 6%, 7%, 18 is what they're paying. But when you're desperate, you take your financing from wherever. So. Um, I, you know, I'm still not sure this airline is going to be out of the woods, but if you don't mind, if you like the prices and you don't mind that possibility that if you're booking six months down the road, Flair might have more problems, I would say do it. And, and really, those people who have flown Flair, the problems with the airline have dropped off completely. There was a Facebook group where you could put your complaints and there's been virtually no new complaints in the last six months. So it's working on many levels. All right. Uh, lots of chatter. Obviously, we know where, where our discussion is around energy, renewables, where we're going moving forward and such. Uh, Pickering nuclear plant uh, in Pickering built, uh, I guess, back in the 1970s-ish. Yep. And uh, at the end of its life and getting little patchwork done here and now, here and there, now we hear that the Ontario government is going to do a complete reno on this. What are your thoughts? Right. So let's start off by saying that in Ontario, our biggest source of electricity that we use in our households does come from nuclear power. You have a couple of choices here. There's Bruce Nuclear, which is up on Lake Huron, and there's Pickering. Pickering on its own contributes 12%, 12% of Ontario's electricity. Uh, we know as we look forward uh, that there's going to be more electric cars. How many? I don't know, but we're going to have more of them. So we want to make sure our electricity supply is constant over the next decade or so. And with the, uh, the chance of Pickering being retired, what do you do? Now, honestly, if I was the Ontario government, I would turn to our good friends in Quebec and Montreal and, and Manitoba. Both of them are producing more electricity than they use, and I would probably sign a supply deal with them. But the other argument is, well, we're not in control. And so if there's a bad situation, we're not in control. We want to be able to control. So today, 
the government's announced a $2 billion, that's with a B, $2 billion refurbishment of Pickering to keep it going for another 30 years. It's not inexpensive power, but it is uh, has proved to be a very reliable source. I would like to try the other option, but that doesn't seem to interest Doug Ford. I remember way back when there were lots of concerns when this first opened. Uh, those really s- haven't seemed to materialize. It's been a pretty uh, safety-conscious operation. It is. The, the one concern we still have is what do you do with the waste? So the solution yeah. seems to be to build a big bunker somewhere again up in the Bruce Peninsula and bury it all, and we'll come back to it in 100,000 years. Now, what facility has anyone built on this planet that's going to live 100,000 years? I'm not sure, but we're kicking that problem down the road. Otherwise, yes, it's had a tremendous safety record. It's, it's been a reliable source of power and a very safe source of power. And as I say, 54% of Ontario's power comes from nuclear, 12% from Pickering alone. All right. Uh, let's talk, spend the last couple of minutes talking about Elon Musk. Um, and, and he, he, uh, he amuses many people. He ticks uh, another segment of the population off. You can't argue, no. though, the, uh, the impact that he has had on the world, whether it's the uh, reintroduction of electric vehicles into uh, production uh, from a commercial standpoint, whether it's, you know, his rockets and in the International Space Station and the projects to the moon and such. And now uh, Neuralink, his uh, his startup, which uh, has just performed a human uh, implant of a chip of some sort into somebody's brain, which will transmit signals to the brain, thus helping those who have mobility issues and 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 uh, are challenged in that way. What are your thoughts? What's coming out of this guy? I mean, it's he's truly is a genius and just as unusual. And, and people seem to be fascinated by him. Well, absolutely. So, and you you didn't mention Starlink, which is his uh, yeah. internet sky thing as well that he does. So, Neuralink, yes, in its simplest form, is simply the implantation of a computer chip into the human body. In this case, it's in the brain. And uh, these chips that he's designed can do two different things. One is to simply monitor uh, almost on a cellular level what's going on in there. So you can imagine, take a, a situation with Alzheimer's, and maybe people are having problems getting the signals to work through the brain. This can let us know, are things getting better? Are things getting worse? And then the other example would be people who've had spinal cord injuries or other kinds of injuries where they've now suffered some kind of mobility impairment. Could we, using computer chips, replicate the neural network within the person's brain. So in other words, if the brain is damaged, can we use technology to fix it? Now, this is all, before you get thinking about Frankenstein and the monster here, this is all at the very early stages. And what he's had is approval from the Food and Drug Administration in the United States to do human trials. They've been doing trials on animals. The trials have been very promising. So this is the next logical step in the evolution. Let's see if we can implant it. Let's see if we can make it work. What information can we get? But honestly, it is the logical evolution in the way we do things. Just like we now have these stents, rather than doing open heart surgery, we put in these Mm. medicated stents, just like we have pacemakers that work on your heart. It it isn't a stretch of imagination to say, let's use technology to repair the body where it can't repair itself. So bless his heart, his interests are diverse. And so far he keeps knocking if not home runs, you know, triples and doubles on everything he chooses to tackle. 
Over and above the, uh, the issue of planting a chip in somebody's head, the operation was done via robotics because it is so sensitive, the human hand can't do it. That alone seems unbelievable. Yeah, and again, we're making more use of robotic surgery technology. Here in Hamilton, uh, St. Joseph's yep. Hospital does prostate surgery using robotics where no humans directly involved. They supervise the process. But they're, they're not there because you point out the human hand, a little bit of movement, a little bit of, uh, of, of tremor, you can do damaging uh, consequences where you're operating. So I, I think this is a logical next step. I realize it's worrisome for some, but if we have the ability to make repairs to the body, why would we not at least see where this can go and see what we can do to, to keep people going? The, the idea of living longer and longer is still quite possible for everyone. Marvin Ryder, professor at a group school of business, McMaster University, talking about all oh, everything business. Marvin, as usual, thanks for the time. Be well. I will. Thank you. Fascinating piece for the Globe and Mail. Uh, Lawrence L. Herman writes that there is an electric vehicle trade war brewing between North America and China, which will have some far-reaching repercussions. To talk more about all of this, Lawrence L. Herman with us of Herman and Associates, uh, uh, International Trade and Investment and Public Policy. And here now, Lawrence, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm doing fine. How are you? So far, so good. How is China on the cutting edge of renewable energy, whether it's EVs, whether it's the uh, the um, the ingredients that are needed to build batteries, whether it's solar panels? How are they so advanced in this yet are still quite a large polluter? Do they sell more than they actually use? I don't know if they sell sell more than they actually use, but they are a major uh, supplier of uh, critical minerals and all of the ingredients that use uh, critical minerals in in vehicles. Uh, And they have a massive uh, production capacity in a whole range of, of technologies that are used in the manufacture of vehicles and in the vehicles themselves. So they are a major player in um, in the world markets, they are exporting more and more vehicles. Uh, as uh, as years go on, they are uh, noted to have exported over five million cars last year, and that's just the beginning of massive amounts of exports. Now, those those five million are not all electric vehicles, but they have a huge uh, capacity, and they will be using that capacity to inundate global markets with electric vehicles. And that is why the uh, European Union has begun a trade case, uh, an investigation uh, uh, against Chinese uh, electric uh, vehicles. And the basis, um, Scott, for these trade cases and these investigations, like the one in the EU, is that Chinese manufacturers of vehicles are subsidized. They are subsidized because we're talking about a state-directed sector, uh, state-directed manufacturing sector, and they get massive amounts of subsidies which allow them to export product onto global markets, not just the vehicles, but uh, various sub-assemblies and components that go into the manufacture of vehicles at uh, low prices because of the huge state subsidies that apply Uh, in China. 
Well, that's so, the basis of uh, of concern, and it's a concern to North American producers. And I, in my article, say that this will be the major trade issue uh, confronting Western uh, liberal democracies in the year to come. So the looming clash is that they have just have such a, an ability to mass produce; they can just simply produce more cheaper than what we can. Well, and and yes, and they are subsidized by the right. uh, by the state, uh, and so they have an advantage when it comes to pricing these products, and that's contrary to the very foundation of international trade law in the WTO and in a whole range of international agreements. The problem has been since China became party to the WTO, they take advantage of liberalized markets, of open markets, but they don't respect the rules themselves. Mm -hmm. Subsidization is all right if you're only subsidizing domestic production, but it's contrary to trade law to export product that is subsidized because it gives an advantage to those products that foreign producers don't have in their own markets. That's the root of the problem. Uh, How do you balance this with free trade? Although, as you said, it's not really free. How does the West react to this? Well, one way uh, the the West reacts uh, is to bring trade actions against subsidized Chinese products that are injuring their own uh, domestic production as the Europeans have started. Now, that case has a, a long way to go, but it is going to, I think, result in a lot of other uh, trade cases against China. Uh, a, a trade case that uh, goes to the WTO, uh, and if the WTO uh, finds that it is unfairly subsidized, that product, vehicles, can be uh, countervailed with duties. They're called countervailing duties. They are duties that are applied to the import by the importing country against Chinese exports to level the playing field. And the other remedy is that companies can bring complaints forward saying these products are being exported at subsidized prices, unfair competition. We can't uh, we can't meet that competition. It's injuring our own production and our own sales, and we want those products uh, subject to countervailing duties. And that's uh, where the world is going. We're going to see more and more of these cases, in my view, uh, uh, proliferating around the world, not just on the final vehicles, but on all of the parts and components that the Chinese manufacture and sluice out onto global markets that go into the manufacturing Uh, of uh, motor vehicles, including motor vehicles in North America. It's going to be fascinating to see how we balance all of this. Uh, Lawrence L. Herman with us of Herman & Associates, International Trade, Investment, and Public Policy. Lawrence, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. You're welcome. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML.
We've talked a lot about nuclear energy. Remember back in the late 70s and 80s when Pickering uh, was up and, and running and such? There were lots of concerns, and here it is decades, decades, decades later, and it's still humming along. Do we keep it going? Uh, do we extend the life? And it looks like the Ontario government is going to push ahead with a complete renovation of the Pickering nuclear power station, scrapping previous uh, plans to retire the decades-old facility. To talk more about all of this, David Nobog is with us, who was there earlier today. Today, a professor in the Department of Engineering Physics uh, and the U- uh, UNENE Chair, Research Chair. I always screw that up. David, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. I'm doing great, Scott. Thanks for having me on. I talked to another person in regard to this and said that they weren't sure if this was the way to go. It may even be someone at McMaster uh, that perhaps what we should be doing is uh, looking at to purchasing electricity from uh, perhaps Quebec or Manitoba. Is that a viable option to refurbing the Pickering plant? No, I, you know, I just been reading reports that over the next five years, places like Quebec will in fact be, be short on energy themselves. So, I mean, sometimes the easy option of looking for solutions from elsewhere seems easy, but I think the details are that, that, you know, five, six years down the road, there won't be electricity from Quebec for us to buy, at least during the times when we need it. Um, So I, I think the decision of Pickering is a really good one. It represents, you know, making use of an asset that's already been you know, largely constructed and getting the best dollar for value for, you know, the electricity it's going to provide. Since we have gone this far now and invested what we have into these facilities, would it be unwise not to keep them going? Yeah, I, I think that's what the process has been. It's taken. The, I, I, I've been aware that the province has been looking at this, and OPG has been looking at it for you know over over a year now, just to look at all the different aspects from from you know funding of it all to to the construction and those kind of things. So I, when I look at it, I, I think the government's already done the process to look at what the available power source is. And when you look at the growth and, you know, I, I, I bought an electric vehicle recently and, and I know a lot of people, other, uh, a lot of other people have. And when you look at all of that change coming, I, I think the province sort of has a, has a, has an imperative to look at getting as many sources of electricity online as it can. Why this now? At one point, it wasn't that long ago, they were planning on scrapping the whole thing. Is it the EB discussion that's changed all of this? Partially, sure. Yes. I, I mean, for a long time, when you look at electricity needs in Ontario, we were kind of flat, you know, as, yeah. as one company set up shop here, another one would leave and and things didn't really change very much. But with the rapid and, you know, growth in population, that's one big reason why electricity will go up. Uh, EVs is another one. But you also have companies, you know, like like uh, like DeFasco who've had announcements over the last couple of years of them looking to electrify a big part of their processes. So, when you when you couple all that together, it's sort of like a, a, a big storm that's going to need a lot of electricity to ride it out. What's involved in renoing a nuclear plant? It just sounds like a mammoth project. It, yeah, you know, it's billions and billions. I, I know the Ontario government isn't giving any cost projections yet, but um, it will be billions. You know, I don't know whether it'll be seven billion or eight billion, but it'll be a it'll be a large ticket item. And it really is from top to bottom a replacement of, of basically everything that's aged in that plant over the last 30 years. So um, things like the turbines that are used to produce electricity will have to be refurbished to, uh, you know, the little uh, components inside the reactor core itself that hold the, hold the fuel. So 
this is going to be, I, I mean, I think the estimates are 11,000 people per year working full time just to get mm. this project done for 10 years. Like you, like that's hundreds of thousands of person years of work. So it's, it's a huge job. Obviously big job generator. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we re- I remember when this uh, nuclear facility first started and there were concerns about it. What have we learned about nuclear energy over the years? Well, I, th- I think we've gone through uh, we've gone through in the nuclear industry some ups and downs. I mean, obviously, I think some of the big uh, the big things that have happened over the last 20, 30 years, like the Fukushima accident, have caused every you know a lot of scrutiny and deserved you know relooking at the safety features in those reactors to make sure that if they're going to be located you know so close to communities that we have everything impossible possible to, to to in place to make sure that they they provide the public with with all the safety that they need and um, and you know there's been we think of re- Pickering being refurbished now but. Since the time of Fukushima, there's already been hundreds of millions of dollars of upgrades put into those plants to make them, um, you know, to improve their safety, safety and to learn those lessons from Fukushima. So this is this is not really, you know, this, this is actually replacing compo- components that were older. The safety improvements were really being made all along over the last 20 or 30 years. Uh, those who oppose will point to nuclear waste, the material that's generated from this. What can you? How can you? How can you add to this discussion and 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 make Canadians feel safe that you know the byproduct of this we can handle? Yeah, you know one um, one luxury of my job is once in a while I get to travel to go you know learn and and exchange information with people overseas. And a great example is in Finland. So Finland relies on on nuclear energy quite a bit. And they're actually quite far ahead of us in terms of their processes to deal with spent nuclear fuel. They've already started construction of their facility, and they have a high public, you know, acceptance of that of that disposal method. And so when I, you know, when I get a chance to go to those places, it's really interesting to learn not just you know the technology of how they'll store the fuel, but also in terms of how the public has sort of. Uh, learned, uh, you know, over the last five or 10 years about the project and, and really come to a vast majority of people support it. I've never been in a nuclear facility. What's it like inside? What do you notice? What stands out? Well, Scott, maybe we should do your show from McMaster. Um, you know, we have a <laughs> Is it, yes, on, yeah. yeah, you got one yeah, on we, campus. Yeah, we could. We, I'd love to show you around. And, and you know, I, I think in a nuclear reactor, it's amazing to me when we when we bring people in that their first their first comment is usually how quiet and how clean everything looks inside the control rooms and, and inside the... I have a feeling we've just lost power with David. Uh, David Novog's been with us, professor, Department of Engineering, Physics, McMaster University, talking about Ontario. Uh, complete renovation of the Pick- uh, Pickering Nuclear Power Station uh, is the order of the day. Scott Kovflish has independently published his debut children's book, The Story of a Goat. It's about a goat named Wishwash, who, with oversized horns, learns to celebrate his differences. And the interesting story about Scott is he was originally diagnosed with MS, only to find out a few years ago that that was a misdiagnosis. So to talk about his journey and his new kid's book, The Story of a Goat, Scott Callflesh is with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Hi, Scott. It's great to be here. Thank you so much for joining us. Greatly appreciated. What inspired you to write this book? Why did you decide to write this? 
Well, to be honest, I uh, was in grade 11 at the time, and uh, I was it was an assignment where it uh, they showed us sheets of like different pictures, and mine was a picture of an antelope, but I decided to go with the story of a goat to make it more simplified, and then I wanted to make the goat seem more, seem different and different than everyone else, as 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 if as if it was like a metaphor for me to be indifferent than everyone else, like growing up with what what I had thought was multiple sclerosis. So how do you get from that in grade 11 to now getting this published? Uh, and, and why that period of time? Uh, well, to be honest, um, I didn't have much, I, like I didn't have, I didn't have uh, the help that I had right. when I was in grade 11. I, I, um, I had recently moved from Oshawa to Peterborough and I I now have um this uh support I, I live in a uh, in a, a home with uh men with disabilities and special mm-hmm. needs and uh they have um people that have or some they they they've assigned me with someone that uh helps me and um figure figure out what I'd like goals to do for the year and I've got my life in order and I uh I said like this is something that I'd like to get done for the year and and it took a year and I finally got it done. So what is the message behind the story of a goat? What do you what's the message you hope everybody takes from it? Uh perseverance is the key and everyone has a everyone's unique in their own special way and everyone has a talent it's just up to them to find it. What has the response been for the book? The response has been uh, miraculous. Uh, I've had people that are posting, uh, re- they're reading to their children on Facebook, and um, they've been messaging me saying, "Like, I can't believe you've done this. This is this is uh, so heartwarming." And uh, the mess, the message that the book conveys to to children, it really uh, sends a good response. That's great to hear. So uh, let's talk a little bit more about you, Scott, and the diagnosis uh, of MS and then recently finding out that wasn't the case. Tell us a bit about that journey and what that was like for you. Uh, well, it was a little confusing because, like, when I when I first, first was diagnosed, it seemed they call it atypical to be diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. And uh, so I grew up uh, having to get, take needles every other day. And, and I was being me- medicated for multiple sclerosis for 20 years of my life. And then, uh, we had this doc, I had this doctor that said something doesn't seem right here. So she took, they took a, a look at my MRIs and different x-rays and stuff. And she said, uh, yeah, it seems that he has something else, something called encephalitis. So it's a certain it's a certain type of encephalitis that I have. And encephalitis, a inflammation of the brain, is that accurate? Yes, that's 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 correct. So, um, how surprised were you that this was misdiagnosed? Uh, this must have uh, just um, confused you terribly. Like, what? Uh, how do you how do you process that for years you've been treating something that you don't have? Yeah, to be honest, it felt like like to be diagnosed with with MS was was like a real like a real scare because it's like MS can be a deteriorating disease and yeah uh, 
when I was misdiagnosed, I felt like it was my, like, like one of the greatest gifts to me uh, of all. So a tremendous relief when you found out this wasn't the case. Right. Yes. And is it easier for you now that you've been diagnosed with encephalitis when it comes to treatment and such, therefore making your life uh, better simply because you're being treated for the right illness? Uh, to be honest, there's there's no there's really no treatment for encephalitis. Well, at least I haven't had any treatment for encephalitis. Yeah. It's just I'm just living day by day, pretty much. And- and how do you look at life differently now, Scott, that you've got this desi- uh, this diagnosis as opposed to one of MS? Um, uh, well, I, I look at it somewhat the same. I mean, when I was diagnosed with MS, I, I did speeches at different schools for readathons. I told kids how important it is to read. And like I'm partially blind in one eye due to my uh, brain injury. And... Um, I thought it was MS that it was due to, but uh, like I, I, I still want to tell kids to read and and how important it is to read and how important it is to not give up in life. What was it like growing up uh, with this and thinking you had MS? How was it different for you? Much similar uh, to as what you're writing in your in your book. Yes, exactly. Uh, I I was sort of centered out. Uh, I was sort of treated differently, and like wish wash is a metaphor to me, pretty much. Like he's different, hmm. feels indifferent, and uh, and eventually finds out that you know um, in time, or there's there's a, if, you know there's a way of finding that you have a special a special talent. It's just up to pretty much just up to you to find it. What is it like for you, Scott, to share your stories with others who may be dealing with similar challenges? Oh, it, it, uh, it, it feels great. Like, um, I, I, I love like even these guys that I live with, they, they live on a day to day basis of some of them, some of it, like I say, they, they might even have it worse than I do. Like they're in in a wheelchair Hmm. and they're living day to day. So, like, I always say, I always used to say it, that life can always be worse. And, you know, you got to look to it. You got to look to the positives in life. Do you think you have another book in you or did that, been there, done that, read and wrote the book? <laughs> to be honest, everyone keeps asking me that. And I, I, I've uh, have some rough drafts of other books that I'd like to get published. So who knows what has what the future has in store. Uh, more kids' books or something uh, a little different, or should I even be prying into this? Um, more kids' books. I, I, I like to face my audience towards kids. And what's the message you have for kids that are growing up with a, a challenge of some sort? Because it must be inspirational for them to meet you and learn your story. Yeah, um, I, I, you know what? I haven't met any kids yet that like I'm going to be. I'm thinking of going to schools and do readathons and stuff. Mm-hmm. And I'm hoping I'm hoping to meet uh, kids with uh, special needs and learning disabilities and sort of reach out to them as well. 
Scott Kopflesh with us, author of the new children's book, The Story of a Goat, and had his own journey, originally diagnosed with MS, only to find out just a few years ago that it was encephalitis. Scott, thanks so much for the time and and insight. Very inspirational, and good luck whatever you decide to do, whether it's another book or whatever. Thanks very much, Scott. Scott Radley coming in after the 6 o'clock news. Hey, have you ever had to do this? Have you ever had to write an apology, like make a correction? Like I screwed up yesterday, big time. And I think I know what you're going to say, but go ahead. And then thank you for not calling me out, because obviously you didn't know at the time either, but I I infected your brain with my misinformation. So yesterday, I don't know what I was reading, what I saw, uh, you know, but just before the show starts, the question period starts, so I'm like kind of watching it and doing too many things at once. But anyway, I made a mistake yesterday, and I greatly apologize, because I said and uh, very convincingly that the Prime Minister missed his first day back to class yesterday and was not at in the House of Commons. I screwed that up. I don't, I, anyway, I made a mistake. He was, in fact, in the House of Commons. And I'm sorry that I did not see what I'm about to play with you, be, or what play for you, because, uh, I would have talked about this instead. This was, uh, the Prime Minister. Listen to this, Scott. This was the Prime Minister, uh, uh, attacking Pierre Polyev, saying that he was muzzling his MPs. After, of course, uh, a Newfoundland MP spoke up about a, a few days ago saying that there should be a leadership review and question the direction of the party. Here is the discussion in the House of Commons. Conservative leader is muzzling his own caucus and putting himself first. We'll keep putting Canadians. The Honourable Leader of the Opposition. This one is just too easy. (laughs) He walked into it. He had to muzzle a member from Newfoundland who called for an end to his leadership, joining another senator who did the same, because they understand that their constituents are literally starving and unable to heat their homes because the prime minister is quadrupling the carbon tax, doubling housing costs, and giving the worst inflation in 40 years. Why won't he listen to, instead of intimidating his member for Newfoundland, and put his leadership up to a review? All right, that's enough. So because I was wrong, I missed that. And uh, clearly I missed a few things. Well, and Pierre Polyev, Pierre Polyev, in his comments, I will say this, made a colossal error there as well that we have to point out. And when Pierre Polyev says that the prime minister should put his leadership up for review, I guarantee you everybody in the conservatives war room are saying, Pierre, shut your mouth. We want Justin Trudeau staying in (laughs) and running against you in the next election. We don't want him to have a leadership review. There there is no chance, even though I'm not convinced that Christian Freeland would do a lot better, there may be somebody in the Liberal Party that could get some traction. The last thing the Conservatives want is Justin Trudeau going anywhere. He is gold for them right now. Gold. Yeah, absolutely. It'll be interesting to see, although, you know, uh, and I see that, but, but honestly, I'm a centrist. So I voted, I have voted for all of them at one point or the other, including the NDP. So, um, for me, I'm looking at it as from a party standpoint, you know, cause he's taken the, the, the great center left party and taken it to the extreme left. At least if he steps down, he will give his party a fighting chance. And even if the other ones don't do as well as he has, at least the rebuilding process has started. Cause I think it's pretty obvious he's finished. Well, it depends. So at least they would give him another start. It depends. It depends who becomes the leader. Again, I, I'm, I'm not convinced that if it's Christian Freeland, 
that it's not a continuation of exactly the same thing. Could it be someone else who would take a more moderate and centrist approach? Yes, that's possible. And I think that quite honestly, even though it's been for how many years now, it's been just assumed that Christian Freeland would take over if he ever leaves. I think I don't think that would be a smart move. I think there's an awful lot of liberals now looking at this who would say, wait a second, we, as you say, we have... The Liberals have traditionally been left, but far closer to the center than they are now. And I think a lot of Liberals would say, how do we get back to that spot? Because where we are right now is fighting for turf with Jagmeet Singh. And it seems like we're in a race to see who can do the thing furthest left fastest. Uh, It'll be fascinating to see how long this actually goes, whether it continues on, because even uh, Jagmeet Singh of the NDP standing up and screaming and yelling every uh, the other day as the House of Commons opens. And of course, it's it's feisty because it's the first day back of the new sitting and such. But he is the one person that can provide relief Uh for Canadians by dismantling this government. And he hasn't. So uh, I'm not sure how he's even going to come back from this, because if you're not happy with the extreme left of the prime minister, why would you be happy with the extreme, extreme, extreme left of Jagmeet Singh? Well, uh, Jagmeet Singh is in a really tough spot and I don't dispute that. And the reason is because yes, he could be, he, he can't simply be the guy carrying Justin Trudeau's backpack all the time, because then it looks like at the end of this, like, what did you do? You just propped up an unpopular government. It was your fault. But if he calls the election now, if he pulls his support, there is a a hundred percent chance. He'll lose what he has. He loses all the power that he has right now and he becomes completely irrelevant. So what do you do if you're him? I don't know the answer. I don't know. And he doesn't clearly know the answer. All right, Scott Radley continues this after the 6 o'clock news. You can read them in your Hamilton Spectator. Thank you, Scott. Have a great show. See you, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer. To have the last word, this comes via text from Carl and his definition of a professional. A professional is an adult, not a child. A professional takes pride in their work, needs no coddling, no pep talks, no psychology. They are paid to produce. They produce. They have enough self-respect never to be caught giving less than their best for value received. Carl. Keep right except to pass. (laughs) 